Hello, and welcome to Birdcast, the podcast where we explore all things Nigel Neal. This episode had a little bit of a troubled genesis. Our conversation with academic and gothic expert Bronte Schiltz had already been rescheduled, and we discovered at the last minute that John couldn't make it. John suggested, nonetheless, that I do it alone. So this is the first episode of Birdcast without John. If you're still here, there's more to this story. We recorded this episode back in November, but a series of sudden and catastrophic life changes meant that this episode's recording was stuck on my computer for about three months. So we're only just getting it out into the ether now. I'd like to think it was worth the wait. In our discussion of the stone tape, Bronte and I talk about the stone tape's lineage of influence. We talk about personal experiences of hauntings when you don't believe in ghosts. The TV studio that's awash in blood-curdling horror baked into its walls. And why the most terrifying horror story ever written might be The Tiger Who Came to Tea. This is Birdcast, episode 34. Things recorded in the walls with guest Bronte Schiltz. slightly different edition of Birdcast this time because it's the first one that we're doing without John. He's, he, he's trapped in an office somewhere. <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm really, really happy to welcome to the podcast Bronte Schiltz. Hi, thank you very much for having me. And obviously you're, you're an expert on television, you're an expert on the gothic, on sexuality in the gothic, the queer gothic, and the only person I think I've ever heard of who took Morrissey's list of the lost seriously. <laughs> yes, I think I, it, I've written the only academic paper on Morrissey's list of the lost. I did it for my undergrad dissertation and uh, my feedback said uh, it ended with the student should be lauded for what is no mean feat, i.e. the rescuing of Morrissey's novella from the critical graveyard it seemed to be consigned to. <laughs> I, I, I have the utmost respect for that. Someone gave me a copy of it a few years ago and uh, it, it sort of went the rounds. People used to like open it at random pages to find a yeah. hilarious line. Yeah. Um, it's some sort of scrying um, implement. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 like the, it's like the Virgilian sorting. Yeah. Um, only with, with um, Morrissey. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. Anyway, going from one dystopian horror to another... <laughs> We're here to talk about Nigel Neal. And I guess the customary question that John would normally ask if he were here, but he isn't, so I get to ask it, is how did you first come across the work of Nigel Neal? Um, so I know people often say Doctor Who. It wasn't through Doctor Who, but I do love Doctor Who and have done since my early childhood. I actually didn't come across Neil uh, until I was doing my master's a few years ago. Oh, right. um, I'd, I'd heard of him before, but I hadn't 
seen anything by him to my knowledge um, and it was when I was doing some work on Inside Number Nine and I was first starting to look at the television as a kind of gothic entity and one of my lecturers said oh you have to watch the stone take you'd love it and I watched it and I did love it and since then I've seen and read everything else by Neil that is available um, so I just absolutely loved everything about his writing and yeah I've been obsessed with him ever since. That's really impressive even Kinvig. Even Kinvik. Even Kinvik, <laughs> my God. You see, that's the mark of a true fan, I think. Yeah. Um, I and myself to, over there, yeah. I, I only got to Kinvig um, the other week and I'm still scarred. Yeah, <laughs> it's an experience. It's quite the experience. Um, so you've done some work recently on the stone tape yeah. and the paper I read compared and contrasted it to Ghostwatch both of which are fresh in my mind because I was lucky enough to be at a screening of Ghostwatch and the Stone Tape with Stephen Volk in Cardiff for the 30th anniversary of Ghostwatch. So, and it's nearly the 50th anniversary of the Stone Tape. Yeah, it's also quite cool. impressive. Yeah. What was it about the Stone Tape that made you fall in love with it? Uh, well, I think it, it really played into my interests. Uh, I was really interested in it and still am. It's the, the main thing I research now. Um, a television as a kind of horrific, medium uh, so I look at representations of the television itself and of broadcasting and recording technologies in gothic and horror fiction and I thought that the way he handled that was so interesting and original and, and his work is the earliest work that I look at so the stone tape and then also things like 1984 and the year of the sex olympics and Quatermass and how he he uses the medium itself as kind of a source of horror in those texts but I think in the stone tape it's kind of his most explicit space for exploring that and I just I, I absolutely loved what he did with it and obviously it, it was so influential not just to, you know just not just with horror fans but I hear people talking about stone tape theory all the time and say oh do you know where that comes from <laughs> and well people... stone tape theory actually appeared a couple of years before Nigel Neal wrote it yeah or did it I think it did I, I, yeah I, I think that what I've heard is that the the term came from Neil, um, but the theory was kind of floating around. And then right. Got, yes. I'm not sure if that's true. That's the the version of events that I've heard. Um, but no, the, the theory predates Neil. It was part of the um, the big heyday of like bonkers, slightly pseudo scientific things that were working yeah. that were going around. It's related to. Um, have you come across Philip Paul Devereux's Earthlights theory? Yeah. It's another yeah. marvelous one. Yes. It's yeah. it's it's so interesting how ingrained it is now in the in kind of theories about ghosts. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts. I wish I did. <laughs> I love ghost stories, um, but it, people seem to really latch onto it as a kind of compelling theory um, for what ghosts are, and it, you know, it influenced so many things that came after, which I just think is fascinating. I realised the first time I saw it how many other things I loved must have been inspired by it. I mean, the whole kind of area of television ghost stories seem to have some link to it which is yeah fascinating it, it really is isn't it obviously the piece you wrote compared the stone tape to ghost watch and ghost watch was inspired by the stone tape and i know that stephen volk apparently had a conversation with jed shepherd on his podcast years ago basically where jed shepherd said if you were writing ghost watch now um what would it look like and volk went I wouldn't write it now. Someone else would need to do that. And Shepherds teamed up with Gemma Hurley and wrote Host. Yes. As a result. And likewise, the Inside Number Nine um, Halloween special from a few years ago. Yeah. Was also 
inspired by ghost works are inspired by the ghost stone tape it's, yeah. it's like a kind of horror family tree yeah <laughs> isn't it and there's so many things that you hear that are either inspired directly by the stone tape or by things that were inspired by the stone tape like ghost watch i mean it's basically impossible to find anything to do with technology and ghosts that doesn't link back to neil in some way which is so interesting because it's so prevalent now you know things like host people who've never heard of nigel neil were talking about hosts during lockdown and obviously that that would never have existed without ghost watch which wouldn't have existed without the stone tape so it all, all goes back to neil a hundred percent there's among the folk horror scene which i sort of have like veered in and out of like a careening um <laughs> moped uh, i've i found that there's sometimes a sub branch of it that people describe as the hauntological and when they think of the hauntological they it's been the word hauntological has sort of been degraded hasn't it so now it basically considers haunted objects is what they're thinking of i mean obviously that's not what hauntology no. <laughs> presumably you've looked at hauntology yeah i went to a great uh lecture series a few years ago on hauntology actually where they were talking about um the fact that even the term itself has kind of become <laughs> haunted at this point of clinging on to its original meaning but meaning something completely different now it really has isn't it the, <laughs> the idea of um it, it's it's weird isn't it you've got this sort of retro technology which of course was back when the thing was made state of the art and that itself is part of the nostalgia and the haunted nature of the thing yeah it's it's interesting i was at um I was at a symposium the other day. So Derek Johnston is putting together a collection yes. called Nigel Neal and Horror, which I'm sure you and most of your listeners already know about. Um, but I'm writing one of the chapters for that um, about, yeah. about his use of the, the television medium. And I got into a discussion with some other speakers there about how his handling of television changed from, you know, the early stuff, 1984 and Quatermass, going through to his later stuff, like, like the stone tape and how, you know, when he was making that early stuff, television was a very new medium. Like people would have been watching Quatermass in 1984 as one of the first things they'd ever seen on television. And then by the time you get to the stone tape, almost everyone owned a television and it had transformed from this brand new medium that was, you know, it was, had the capacity to be disturbing because people didn't really understand it. They didn't really know what it was or how to interact with it to something that had a completely different capacity to be disturbing because it was so normal and people didn't think about it at all. And, and that kind of lends it a different kind of, a different kind of horrific edge in the way that the way that it can be used in horror as something that's kind of lurking unnoticed in the home, which I, I think Neil really, is very aware of and, and and really played into. I mean, he did with all of his work. I think he's always been very aware of of the medium and the time he's writing it. You can really see it in everything he's written, really. It's true. And it comes back again and again in the things he's written from the Stone Tape, obviously 1984, the year of the Sex Olympics. But then later on, you see it in The Woman in Black, where yes. there is technology that is not in Susan Hill's book. Yeah. These yeah. things sort of come over and over again in his work yeah. and that does actually go back to his influences yeah as well so you go back to wells yeah as well i was particularly interested in the paper you wrote where you mentioned dracula yes as well which and you mentioned dracula in terms of the xenophobia in yeah. the stone tape 
But of course, the other thing in Dracula is that Dracula is defeated by people using typewriters yeah. and an encyclopedic knowledge of train timetables. Yes. Yeah, there's that lovely line, isn't there? 19th century up to date with a vengeance. Um, and it, it's so much a part of, of Dracula. Um, it, in fact, they talk about it in very explicit detail, the fact that these technologies that they're using are brand new. Um, and also the fact that you know trains are a British invention that feels significant as well in, in Dracula, that they're using this kind of British technology to defeat this foreign, um, this foreign monster, uh, which is, of course, a theme in the stone tape, but one that Neil is a lot more critical of than, than Bram Stoker. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, Neil, Neil is very critical about that. I think that's probably worth talking about. Obviously, um, the sort of person who's listening to Birdcast has seen the stone tape. So we only need the briefest summary, don't we? You know, a bunch of engineers working for a technology firm that may or may not be in trouble or looks like it might be in trouble in the future um, are looking for the next big thing in a new facility which is built in a manor house. The manor house turns out to be haunted. They decide to investigate the science of the haunting and monetize it what could possibly go wrong (laughs) it's a it's a fantastic premise for a story i mean it's the premise of of all good ghost stories really isn't it someone does something that they shouldn't do and they uh they suffer the consequence i mean that's basically every mr james story um pretty much yeah but it's such a timely one um i've been developing that the the paper a bit because that was written for a conference and happened last month um, and it, it came out of my my master's dissertation, but I've been developing it for for the the Nigel Neal and horror collection, and I've been looking at where kind of technology, televisual technology was at the time. And when Neil was writing, it was right in the middle of this big competition to develop um, things like video cassette technology and developing television technology. And, and as they reference in the program, Japan was leading that with no competition really the the yeah. there's a time the video cassette wars or, or the the um cassette format wars it has a few different names um and it was just between japanese companies the rest of the world was kind of completely left behind which is obviously a, a central concern among the Rhine electrics team i mean they reference it very explicitly at several points um which is you know it, it's a very contemporary take on on that classic kind of ghost story formula yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird. It's the, the the particular brand of racism they come up with is a racism that comes from terror itself. Yes. They, they you know, you have the guy doing the cartoon Japanese accent and yeah. <laughs> the, the thing with his where he puts his fingers at the corners of his eyes, yeah. and that somehow doesn't seem to be your Jim Davidson kind of racism. Really, no. it's sort of it comes from a sense of threat. Yeah, it's and I am one of my favourite bits is where the guy with the green hands, Crowthorn, yeah. comes in, and Peter Brock, uh, Michael Bryant's character, um, denies him the space to research his all singing, all dancing washing machine. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the points he makes as to why it's never going to work is that it is going to be nine hundred nicker a, a unit before you actually sell it. Yeah. And that reminded me of you talking about the videotape, um, the Philips videotape recorder, the Philips VCR, which was the first commercially available one. Yeah. And it was in development at the time. In development at the time. It was only released a few months later. Yeah. And it cost 300 pounds. Yeah. 
which was the cost of a mini back then yeah. <laughs> and um didn't work on ntsc televisions yeah it, it's so timely isn't it? it it's it's just genius i think and, and you're absolutely right it's it's not the the racism is not these people are inferior to us it's these people might be superior to us and we can't yes. have that <laughs> uh, which is is fascinating i think um because you don't see that so much in you know so much gothic and horror fiction deals with fear of the other um but normally it's all about you know portraying them as lesser and, and that doesn't really happen you know even in the scenes in the stone tape where they mock Japanese people. It's very obvious that it's coming from a place of insecurity um, about their kind of national space and their careers. But yeah, it is so much kind of in the the, the zeitgeist of the time that that Japan was was really at the forefront of, of technological development, especially with television. And and you see that coming up in in you know some really classic horror products afterwards, like Ringu is the, the obvious example. Of course, that wasn't in yes. the um, that was quite a while later, obviously. So Neil was really kind of preempting um, that kind of moment in horror. It's really interesting, actually. You look at um, Hideo Nakata's Ring. Mm. Um, Ko- yeah, Koji Suzuki wrote the novel and his Hideo. Yeah. I, I was a terrible person because I always get them mixed up. Um, <laughs> you look at, but you look at Hideo Nakata's Ring, and you can actually see how it has a lot of the same elements as an MR James Nigel Neal ghost story, doesn't yeah. it? You know, yeah, set absolutely. on an island nation where the population is very strongly concentrated in certain areas. Yeah. Um, that used to have an empire. Yeah. That it has, has a, a real lot, Yeah, it has a real folk make. horror vibe, doesn't it? Um. But, yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, and of course it's based upon the mythology of the area, which of course is very different. But yeah it has a lot of the same kind of assumptions and subtexts yeah and when these things come out through the videotape and again state of the art in the 90s yeah you know two years later obsolete yeah and they talk about it in the book there's a whole discussion about um because the protagonist is a a man in the book um, but still a journalist and he talks about how he has access to this equipment to copy the videotape because of his job and that that's just fascinating, I think, you know, looking at it now when anyone can rip anything with, you know, five seconds to spare by going online. But it, it's very much the same kind of concerns as the, the stone tape, I think, that. And I love that discussion in the stone tape where someone's saying, you know, even if we can harness this haunting as technology, how are we going to use it? Because you can't flip a stone slab over on a record player. Uh, and then the response is you're you're thinking about it wrong. You're thinking about it in current terms. You need to get out of that mindset and stop thinking about things as we do them now. This is going to be completely different. And that's kind of ha- that's exactly what's happened over the last few years. You know, people mock the stone tape for thinking that you know that stone would be the cutting edge of technology. But what Neil's talking about is exactly what's happened. You know, the way that we engage with media now is something that we couldn't possibly have imagined you know even a, a decade or so ago so I, I think it's a lot more it's a lot more true to to the way that the technological progress progress actually went than people give it credit for oh completely the bit where um, Brock is there talking about having an entire musical album in an earring yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> like you know anybody who's seen an, an apple earbud yeah sees that we, we've 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 reached that point although not necessarily in the same way, although 
of course, a lot of these media are made of stone. Yeah, I think it was very, very kind of prescient. Uh, and, and the way that, that technological development is handled, you know, the fact that there's a new iPhone every year and it's just because Apple wants to make more money and you think they must have had these ideas for developments before. They can't just keep thinking of them every couple of months, but they're obviously releasing them bit by bit to keep making more money and keep making more money and to stay ahead. And Absolutely. that's exactly what they're doing um, at Taskerland. Yeah, uh, they have a roadmap. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah. And of course, um, what they're doing at Taskerland is also, aside from being um, xenophobic and based upon a sort of fear and everything, there's, there's a lot of relational stuff there that comes out through that. One of the classic Gothic tropes is, of course, the hysterical woman. Yeah. And this is framed in the, I guess, the context of epic sexual workplace harassment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that part. The first time I watched it, I was like, wow, this is, <laughs> you can tell this was made in the 70s. Not that I don't think Neil is unsympathetic to Jill. I think he's very Not sympathetic at all. to her. But I, you just can't really imagine something that explicit being in a film made now. But but it's so interesting, isn't it? Because um. If you've read the book um, Haunted Media by Jeffrey Sconce, he talks about kind of the history of technology and hauntings. And he talks about how women have been associated with this use of technology to investigate hauntings right back since when technology was first kind of invented, um, going back centuries. And, you know, most of the professional mediums during the Victorian era were women. Indeed. And you see that in... Um, Neil's other works, of course, in, in Quatermass and the Pit, you have the, the sensitive woman um, who, again, is more able to use the technology to process. I mean, it's not quite a haunting, though it is described in those terms by some characters. Um, and so it, it plays into that kind of very traditional kind of gendered view. Um, but I think Neil is very sympathetic to Jill in that he obviously doesn't think she's hysterical, even when the other characters do. And really, she's far less hysterical than most of the men in the way that they react. Um, it is quite literally hysterical at some points. The scene where they're basically just blasting the place with various yeah. frequencies to do stuff, and you see at least two of the guys completely losing their rag yeah. before she does. Yeah, and her reaction seems quite reasonable to me. Uh, but yeah. I, I think my favourite line of the, the, whole, the whole piece is that it's in the computer line. Oh, yeah. I've shown so many people, when I, when I say to them, if you've seen the stone tick, they say, no, I'm, like, well, I'm going to show you my favourite scene and <laughs> make them watch that. It's just fantastic. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen. Um, but but that scene, the men really don't handle it very well. And and Jill yeah. seems, seems quite put together. So I think it's interesting how Neil takes these tropes and he uses them, but he also subverts them at the same time and does something very interesting with them. And you, you see that throughout his work. I mean, the difference between Jill and the man is that Jill is empathic about yeah. it. She actually, there's that wonderful scene where basically she talks with Brock about whether um, the ghost knows yeah. what yeah. that's like and how she couldn't bear it if the ghost yeah. actually was aware. Yeah, it, it's quite beautiful, that part, I think. And it is yeah. interesting, that kind of gendered element. I was, um, a friend and I were, were hosting a screening of John Carpenter's The Thing for a, a 40th anniversary screening last week. Uh, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, it's an all-male cast and they don't really have any 
ability to process things emotionally at any point. I think there's one line uh, where someone says that uh, another character was his friend and he'd known him for 10 years. And that's the extent of grieving and empathy um, that takes place in the entire film, because in this very kind of masculine space, they obviously yeah. feel that there's no there's no room for that kind of um, way of processing a disaster. They just have to be practical. Um, and actually, Jill is really the only person who is dealing with it, on, not just on a, a, an emotional level, but she does most of the, the actual scientific work that lets them uh, process the haunting, which is interesting as well, I think. That's actually an interesting parallel for me, um, because obviously back in the early 70s, um, because computer programming was seen as a secretarial pursuit, yeah. it was the preserve of women and once it became a professional pursuit it became the preserve of men yeah. <laughs> um, and her computer programming is clearly sort of subordinate to like a lot of the other people and of course the medium at that period if you look at the um, list of presidents of the spiritualist national union over the last 100 years yeah there's only one woman interesting ever yeah it's all guys it's very interesting, isn't it, given that the way that, that spiritualism was maligned in the media, and, and often rightly so, you know, I'm, I have a lot of scepticism about uh, those kind of practices, but it was often maligned as a, a hysterical female pursuit. And yet you have men in these kind of high power positions, even within that field. Um, it's, it's interesting the way that things like that get gendered. Um, and I think Neil is very self-aware with his kind of evocation of those sorts of things. Indeed. I mean, you see this in Ghostwatch as well. Yeah. You have, of course, which of which of the girls is the target for the haunting, yeah. whether it's her emotional state causing it. And then you see a male medium turn yeah. up who's, to be fair, presented in a comical way. Yeah. It is... Uh, Ghostwatch is very interesting in that that sense because um, you have Lynn Pascoe, um, the kind of female parapsychologist who again is mocked by um, the the man that the BBC bring on uh, for 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 balance <laughs> within the plot, and then oh god, the single Isn't mother, that classic, though? yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, and and Sarah Green is the one in the house with them while the men are either outside the house or they're back in the studio. Um, and again, I think Stephen Volk is very aware of what he's doing there. And he, yeah. you know, he vindicates the women, he vindicates, you know, the working class families that are being made to look stupid. It's, um, uh, there's a great line where, if you've ever seen the documentary Behind the Curtains about Ghostwatch, it was unavailable for years, but it was actually just made available by the BFI a few days ago. Um, so it's well worth checking out if anyone hasn't seen it. But there's a bit where Stephen Volk talks about um, uh, this idea that all ghost stories are either Marxist or Freudian and that ghost watches both. <laughs> and I, I think he, like Neil, he champions the people who are you know, often maligned in these stories and in, in culture more broadly. It's, it is the women and the, the working class communities that, that get vindicated by the end of the story. Yes, I think that's that's very true in pre pretty much everything Nigel Neal ever did, particularly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he's. You know, people talk about Neil being apolitical, and 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 he himself has kind of made claims to that effect 
act, but I think he's very empathetic. You know, he's interested in in humanity, um, and that itself lends a particular angle to his writing. It, it always, you know, you never have heroes in Neil who are terrible people who treat other people badly. Those people often end up with bad things happening to them. Um, and oh, he does do yeah. and, and you know, in 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 Quatermass in the Pit, he talks very explicitly about how racism and hatred are the kind of scourge of, of humanity. Um, and I think you really see that in in the Stone Tape as well. You know, even even though people like Jill suffer, um, the the real horror is what the men have done to her um, by not caring about anyone except themselves. Not even each other. They just care about making money and making their name um which seems to be a recurrent theme in in neil's work people who don't care about other people um they're the ones who get uh, get punished indeed we we had una mccormack on um some a while back and she mm. she did the stone tape with us and she's she's always yeah. really kind of struggled with the way in which um the sexism and sexual harassment in that show mm. is presented um how do you feel about it? Do you find it difficult to? I I definitely understand that perspective, and I mean it's it those aspects aren't enjoyable <laughs> to watch. Um, but I don't know that they were intended to be. You know, I I don't think that Neil is presenting the men's behaviour towards Jill as reasonable, or the way that they no. talk about Japan as reasonable. I, I I think it's very much the point that that I, I think he's very aware that they're misogynistic, because his male characters often are, and I think that's something. You know, I don't think that's accidental I don't think that's prejudice on Neil's part um, not because at all, no. they're so obviously unlikable I think I, I mean I was talking to one right. of my friends today who loves Neil as well and we were talking about the fact that none of his male characters can talk at a normal volume they have to scream all the time <laughs> and it's just so unpleasant yeah. with, with exceptions you know like 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 Mass. but um he, his misogynistic male characters I think are very consciously portrayed as, as unpleasant people yeah, you have you have these characters just barking at each other, don't yeah. they? Sort of like, you know, you know, it's like um, statement, counter statement, statement, counter statement, yeah. just like quickly together. Um, which seems is something Neil does a lot in his in his writing. Um, yeah, I think Baby is has the most screaming of any uh, oh God, yeah. any piece of television I've ever seen. I I don't think uh, any of the male characters' lines uh, are delivered at a normal speaking volume in Baby. No, and like likewise, um, Murren as well, yeah. which is my favourite. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, fantastic for various reasons. Um, has a lot of that barking, escalating yes. of things at each other. Um, on the other hand, when he does have a sympathetic male character, they do tend to be somewhat quieter. So, um, yeah. Arthur Kidd in The Woman in Black is quite a quiet guy. Yeah, he's um, one of his most lovable. I, I mean, I know he's not his creation, but the way that he writes him, I find very yeah. endearing. I think he's I likeable. really love animals. So it's, I, I find it, it, it's rare, I think, in TV and film to see people being very affectionate with animals. And I love that about Neil's work. I find it very endearing. The way that uh, Arthur sits with Spider on his lap cuddling him uh, at various scenes is just so sweet. I just, yeah, I think it's lovely. I mean, I mean, Neil's evidently an animal lover. Yeah. I mean, the big chunk of Beasts is basically about cruelty or fear of animals as yeah. well. Um, I think also, you know, if you're married to someone who's made their entire career yeah. based upon <laughs> a lovable cat. Yes. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to have a positive attitude towards animals, really. 
Yeah, my best friend, um, she actually finds uh, Judith Kerr's work a lot more terrifying than Neil. She's really scared of anthropomorphic animals. And she said that the right. tiger who came to tea is the most terrifying horror she's ever encountered. That's amazing. <laughs> that but we she, have... uh, yeah. she only learned recently that Mog dies in one of the books and was very, had, she was grieving Mog uh, many decades after. When that. our cat <laughs> died, my kids were helped by Goodbye Mog. Yeah, I was when I was a child. I remember um, it's one of my one of earliest memories of when, my, my, when I first had a cat die. I, I, my parents are huge cat people. I've always had cats. Um, I think I was seven and my parents read um, Goodbye Mog to me. And I remember processing um, my, my, that was probably my first experience of grief through that book. Yeah, it's lovely. Ghost Watch, um, particularly, also has a lot of those class issues. We talked yeah. about like women's issues, but class issues. You've got um, obviously you've got um, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith, and Craig Charles playing characters called Michael Parkinson, yeah. Sarah Green, Mike <laughs> Smith, and Craig Charles. And over the course of that, they're each given roles. So Parky gets to be the patrician yeah. voice My of reason. My friend Adam, who um, he runs a podcast called the Ghost Story Book Club, he's a big Ghost Watch fan, calls him Grandparky in Ghost Watch, which I love. <laughs> you sort of see that, but he's sort yeah. of on the irascible granddad side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mike Smith looks concerned. Sarah Green falls into the kind of maternal role very quickly when um, Pam Early is taken outside into the outside broadcast unit to take calls. Yeah. And Craig Charles gets to be working class. Yes. That's very interesting, isn't it? And he's the person who goes and meets the community. Um, yeah. And, and he's, I suppose, the most like them uh, in that his kind of class background is similar to theirs. And that feels, you know, that isn't explicitly mentioned, but that feels intentional um, that he's the person going out and meeting people. And, of course, you have, you know... It, so many people believe the conceit that it was real um but even if you didn't you know the, the the premise of the drama at that point is that maybe these people were just deluded maybe they just live in this horrible area where bad things happen and they're using this ghost as a scapegoat and that feels very much like it, especially kind of at that time in the 90s and noughties you know the, the way that working class communities were, were spoken about in the media was atrocious i mean it still is but but even yeah. more so then um and it feels very much of an ilk with very kind of genuine um, coverage of, of crime in working class communities. And you have Craig Charles going out and meeting them and hearing their stories. And then again, like in much of Neil's work, by the end of the story, they're vindicated. And you, you learn that it, it wasn't them. It really was this malicious force. And they were telling the truth. And it was the people who weren't listening to them and believing them that were contributing to these problems um, while they were doing their best to solve it. And, and, and you also have the fact that you know, I, I've said to a few people that for me, the kind of one of the most crucial elements of a haunted house story or any kind of horror story is you have to answer the question of why don't the people living there just leave? And that's such right. a crucial part of telling a good ghost story. Um, his house on Netflix does that very well um, from a few years ago. And it, it, in that film, um, they're asylum seekers and they've been yeah, assigned yeah. the house and, and they can't leave. Otherwise, they'll lose their 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 right to, to claim asylum. And it's a similar thing in Ghostwatch. You know, there's that scene where Pam talks to Sarah Green 
And she says, I wrote to the council and asked them to move us and they wouldn't, they wouldn't take us seriously. And then she says, so she wrote to the newspapers and they mocked them. They wrote to, to local television uh, broadcasters and they didn't help them. So they went to the BBC. And of course, Neil worked with the BBC for years. Many of his programmes um, were on the BBC. And that feels crucial in itself, that it's this kind of national, this this national entity um, that holds such a prominent place uh, in the culture. And of course, part of the response to Ghostwatch, have you ever seen the Bite Back episode um, where people go oh, on to air their grievances? I mean, it's fascinating, but there are so many people who say, oh, it was great. It was a great ghost story, but it shouldn't have been on the BBC. We trust the BBC and we trust Parkinson and you tricked us, um, which is so interesting, I think. And I, I was talking to some friends the other day about, I vividly remember, I think it was in 2007 or 2008, um, uh, the BBC did this April Fool's broadcast um, about penguins learning to fly. And um, I was uh, around my early teens at that time. And I was out um, with my mum and one of her friends. And I hadn't seen it, but my mum had seen it. And she said to one of her friends, oh, did you hear that penguins have learned to fly? And I was saying, what? Of course they haven't. I mean, my mum's a very clever woman. She's not gullible. But I was saying, mum, that's not how evolution works. You know that. It's not just learning new things. That, that's not how it works. And I remember her saying, but it must be true because I saw it on the BBC. Uh, and that feels very crucial to, to Ghostwatch explicitly, but also to, to some of Neil's works in a less kind of explicit sense. You know, the um, the BBC is present in, in some of his programmes, like um, in Quatermass and the Pit, there's the BBC. Um, yes. They're reporting um, from the scene and that feels, you know, it feels notable that it is the BBC um, you know that he uses BBC branding he doesn't use kind of um, a fictional broadcaster he actually has you know BBC cameras there and maybe that was partly because those were the things that were easier to get a hold of as props I'm not sure but it feels relevant to to the plot that this um, huge kind of national institution is present in these stories. It grounds it doesn't it I'm, yeah. I'm also reminded actually of the the, and this is actually even before I was born, but the nationwide thing in the late 60s of the spaghetti tree. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which is a similar sort of, it was another April Fool's report they did. Yeah, and that got similar responses. I remember when I was a child, my nan mentioning that once and, and mentioning that she'd been taken in by it. And again, my mm. nan was very clever and my my granddad worked um, for newspapers. He was a newspaper compositor. Um, and they were taken in by it. Um, and, and these were people who had sort of inside knowledge of how news was produced. Um, but again, I remember my nan saying it was the BBC. So we thought it must be true. Uh, it's just so interesting that, and again, that got the same response as the Penguin thing did and that Ghostwatch did of people saying, you shouldn't trick us, we trust you. You know, the whole sort of thing about the BBC is auntie, which, you know, I always thought that's the kind of role that, that Sarah Green plays in Ghostwatch. She's like this kind of aunt figure who kind of consoles Pam and looks after the children. And she kind of seems to embody the BBC there, as do the other presenters in different ways. But that kind of familial role, she really seems to fill, which is interesting. I think what's particularly interesting about it is that it sort of shines a light on the fact that many of these people are in fact characters. Yeah. Even when they're actually doing supposedly factual programmes, they're all actors. Sarah Green yeah. was an actor as, yeah. as much as anything else. Even appeared in Doctor Who one time. Yeah. Played an alien. Yeah. Terrible yeah. episode. 
but yeah. <laughs> absolutely god awful but she attack of the cybermen i think yeah played an alien in, in doctor who had been an actor went to stage school yeah a lot of these people came to the bbc from not from journalism but from theater craig charles was yeah. currently best known at the, even at that time for being a yeah. red dwarf yeah so the fact that they fell into these roles with ease one thing um stephen told me when i had him on stage last week was that michael parkinson didn't improvise so much but he was given free reign to deliver the lines exactly as he would if he were presenting a show yeah. if he was presenting a show So there. Pray. Prayer. It's in the computer! No! It is! It is! Bloody fool! Jill picked up words! You got words yourself, that's how it works, I told you! Then it is! So another thing that particularly came out of your paper, actually, mm. one of the things that I really loved about your paper, actually, um, where is it? Oh yeah, so this is a line that was said by an anonymous person, but the horrors that were being committed in the bowels of that building can never be scrubbed from those walls ever. Yeah. And what, what was that building? Uh, it was the set of the Jeremy Kyle show. Yes! Fascinating, isn't it? it it's from a fantastic documentary uh, that came out earlier this year. I think it's called Jeremy Kyle Show Death on Daytime. Um, and they... Uh, interview various people who were involved in the production of the Jeremy Kyle show and they tell absolute horror stories and this that quotes from an anonymous, anonymous camera operator uh, they're all anonymized for obvious reasons um, and he uses that language that is it, I mean it's straight out of a horror film it really it's just is, fascinating it? um, he also compares it to uh, kind of like an abattoir he talks about vulnerable people being taken in and churned out um and, and it's just so interesting I think and it is I mean it, it's heavy watching um I I really recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it but it is heavy there's a lot of talk about um people who are involved in the production side um killing themselves because of, of what they experienced um the things that they had to do to people and the way that they themselves were treated and it is horrific but when I first watched that I was watching it with my partner and I was like god this is awful but this is also so interesting because this is exactly what my research is about in a fictional context and here it is being used about real you know real reality television and I mean this this is what Neil was talking about in year of the sex olympics Absolutely. I mean 
literally um it, it's just fascinating I mean I, I think Neil's genius is is you know the year of the sex olympics isn't my my favorite of Neil's I think the stone tape is, is my favorite and and Quatermass obviously I think everyone who loves Neil is a, has a special place in their heart for Quatermass but oh yeah I often recommend um, the Year of the Sex Olympics to people who haven't seen anything by Neil because I think it displays his genius just brilliantly. I mean, he predicted basically the whole of reality television and everything we've seen in the last few years with reality television coming under fire for how it treats people. I mean, Neil was was dealing with all of that years before um, there was any such thing as reality television the way we know it now. Uh, It's fascinating to watch it in the context of things like what happened with the Jeremy Kyle show and what's happened with Love Island, where there have been similar similar complaints about people ending their lives after participating in it. Um, though interesting that that is still as popular as ever when that was the thing that that ended the Jeremy Kyle show. Though I read that Jeremy Kyle's coming back to television next year, which is oh, God. Uh, disturbing. Yeah. But then, I mean, Jeremy Kyle is another one of those characters, isn't he? Yeah, He's sort of- yeah. He's an and he, oh, absolutely. Uh, and he himself has admitted to doing lots of the things that he screams in people's faces about. Um, and is obviously, I mean, I, I've, I remember from the first time I ever saw Jeremy Kyle on television, thinking what a horrific way to treat people, no matter what those people have done. Um, it's just awful. But somehow people find him entertaining, which is, again, exactly what, what Neil was, was warning about. Uh, decades before there was any kind of inkling of anything like the Jeremy Kyle show. I think one of the worst things, and I mean, obviously, at the risk of getting openly political here, the idea that someone might be entertainingly awful, yeah. and that we might admire them and treat them as a leader in some way, yeah. is probably <laughs> kind of where everything that's bad in the last decade is being from. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you notice it even in the language people use, the fact that people called Boris Johnson Boris or Bojo as if he was some sort of entertainment figure and not an extremely powerful politician was fascinating. And, you know, uh, I have, you know, nothing positive to say about Boris Johnson, but I don't think he's stupid. You know, people treat him like an idiot. I think he's very clever. He knew how to curate that image. And again, that's exactly the sort of thing that a Neil antagonist would do. <laughs> it's Very great much so. kind of entertaining image so that you can get away with things because people find you funny or or they find you enjoyable to observe in some way. And and you see it at the moment with um have you seen um all of these things like is it Jeremy Hunt who applied for I'm a celebrity? Um uh, Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock, that was it. Um and that seems to be exactly the same premise uh you know if you make yourself entertaining enough people will forgive you uh when you do things that that go against their best interests um you know that doesn't feel like a a coincidence to me that it's now that he's decided and apparently he was on celebrity SAS or something like that um and it's the same or or he he entered it I'm not sure if he's actually been on it I mean I I avoid things like that uh like the plague but um yeah it just feels very much um I mean, very evocative of, of Year of the Sex Olympics, where then the people in power are people on television and the politics and television are, are basically one and the same in Year of the Sex Olympics and in, in 
1984, in fact. I think it's interesting how prominent he makes the kind of telescreen aspect of the novel within the adaptation. He really brings that to the fore um, right. as this kind of source of, of horror, which is, which is very, again, um, very prescient, I think. This is kind of brings us back, although it might not seem to immediately, but it kind of brings <laughs> us back to the idea of the haunting mm. and what a haunting actually is. Yeah. Because um, if I remember rightly, Derrida, when he came up with the idea of hauntology, yeah. Oh, you know, that's academic for a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> podcast about telly, we're talking about Jack Derrida. Um, <laughs> yeah, Derrida only comes out, he describes it as an unresolved past. Yeah. Coming back. And I, um, for several years, was convinced that I had stolen this idea from China Mieville, but I sort of imagined that the ghost is basically a um, the past radicalised to perform terrorist attacks on the present. It turns yeah. out that Mieville only mentioned radicalization. He didn't take it to the full extent. So oh, maybe I did think of that. I don't know. Yeah. Someone, take or someone else that. did. That's yours. I yeah. that. But the <laughs> idea that, um, yeah, hauntings come from an unresolved history, a sense that there is business that is left over, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a fantastic... Um, Derrida quote, I can't remember exactly how it goes, um, but he talks about how it, it goes something about um, capitalists breathing a sigh of relief and saying that, that communism uh, is dead, it's a ghost. And he said, it goes something like, um, they don't do no more than deny the undeniable itself, um, that a ghost is never dead, it remains always to come and to come back. It goes something like that, it's beautifully written. Um, and I think that that's very much kind of the basis. So we see it in a lot of ghost stories, but definitely um, in, in the stone tape and ghost watch, it's this repressed um, past, both yeah. in terms of, you know, um, things like the, the mistreatment of this maid um, who's um, hasn't been memorialized in the stone tape, but also, you know, when um, there's the line about how most of medieval London is built on this stuff, this idea that, you know, because, you know, famously London, like many other major cities, is there's another London under the ground. And I live course, in Manchester yeah. and there's another Manchester under the ground. There's also mass graves under the ground, including um, there's a park at Manchester Metropolitan University where I did my master's uh, that people know has thousands of bodies underneath it. Um, and there's no kind of memorialization of that. Um, this idea that wow. England is built on top of the dead um and that we don't really deal with that and we don't really admit it partly because it's so normal I think um that's another kind of difference between British ghost stories and American ghost stories and that um uh, uh, an American acquaintance of mine recently um messaged me and said that he thinks that a house he used to live in was, was haunted and he said well you know it was really old. It was a hundred years old. And I thought, well, nearly every house we ever lived in has been at least a hundred years old, if not more. Yeah. I'm sitting um, in a house that's 115 yeah. years old. Yeah. Right yeah. Um, my childhood home is, is now about 120, 130 years old. And uh, my mum actually had to have it. She had to move out for a week and have it completely kind of the interior completely rebuilt because she found out that the, um, kind of the piping and the wiring was the original and so the whole wow. house was literally falling apart entirely <laughs> um, which they made for a, a nice spooky childhood it's interesting because my parents used to say the house used to creak a lot probably because it had pipes that were very old and we it was um there'd be all these 
spooky kind of creakings um and my parents would say oh don't worry it's just pipes so the first time I saw a ghost watch I was like oh no <laughs> oh no he was in my house but that it's interesting I think the way that I mean, we don't deal with death at all, um, but we also kind of just accept it as normalised. I remember speaking to another American friend when my, my granddad died um, and we were selling his house uh, and he died at home. And she was saying, oh, won't it be difficult to sell because because he died there? And I said, well, pretty much every house over a certain age has had someone die in it here. Or if it hasn't, then someone died on the house that was there before that one was there. We don't really right. think about that, um, which I think... Um, you know, obviously, I think it's good that people aren't um, put off perfectly good homes um, because they're of a certain age. But at the same time, you know, I think we have a culture where we don't deal with death and we don't deal with difficult things in general. And that feels very much um, kind of a prominent theme in, in much of Neil's work, including the stone tip. You know, when Jill's trying to yeah. convince the rest of Ryan Electrics to confront what's happened in the house you know that these people have suffered so much that it's been etched into the stone and they're just not interested and that feels as kind of English as it does male you know it, it feels like that's much as much so. because of their national identity as the fact they have these very kind of macho personas yes um going back to the idea of the ghost story now I used to think that you could only really write a good ghost story if you didn't believe in ghosts yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, a good ghost story does actually sometimes feed into the real. Yeah. People do seem to believe these things a little bit yeah, more readily than they should. I think it's interesting in that, um, I mean, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in any anything after death. Um, but I, I, I think everyone I know has had moments where they've thought, oh, that was strange. You know, not necessarily, oh, that must have been a ghost. But I, I wonder what that was, because there's, I can't explain that with my current understanding of the world. Like, I, yeah. the only moment I've ever had mm -hmm. like that was I, I was seven years old and my um, my dad took me and my brother camping. I hate camping. So I had oh, solidarity. Me, yeah, yeah, it's just awful. I don't know why oh, anyone yeah. would do yeah. that to themselves willingly. Uh, it's a punishment as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. my dad's really into camping, things like that. So to appease me for having been forced to sleep in a tent for a few nights, I convinced him to, uh, it was in Cornwall, to take me on this ghost tour. I don't know how I found out about it. Um, I must have seen some sort of poster or something. But um, so my dad took me and my brother on, on this ghost tour. But the day before we went, um, we were in the little village that we were camping near and um, my dad wanted to cut through this road which he, he thought was a shortcut my dad's really into uh you know he had all his maps and his compasses and things and he'd worked out this shortcut and I refused to go down this road and there was nothing strange about it it was perfectly well lit it was quite pretty it had this bridge going over this stream um and I refused to go down it and my dad kept saying why um and I was quite rational for a seven-year-old child you know I didn't get spooked by things really but I just kept saying I don't like it I don't want to go down there um so my dad said oh, okay it was only going to add a few minutes to go the other way so we went the other way and the next day on the ghost tour that was the first place we went um and the tour guide told us and I think this is this part is true um that some horrific things had happened there so there'd been a brutal sexual assault and then the woman had drowned herself in this river um a child had been murdered and a woman had been kept locked up in her attic by her family for decades. And apparently those things really had happened on this road. And 
I, I remember looking at my dad and seeing that he was not scared, but he was uneasy. And that made me even more scared <laughs> as a seven year old child that was not used to seeing my dad unsettled. Um, but, you know, I, as I said, I don't believe in ghosts, but I, I always think that I, I can't explain that with the way that we currently have of understanding the world. So I think ghost stories play into that kind of uncertainty you know not might ghosts actually exist but might there be elements of our reality that we don't understand yet indeed it just because something doesn't currently have an explanation doesn't mean it's always going to be inexplicable yeah, the, yeah. i think that is a fantastic time for us to draw things to a close so it only remains to me to ask you if there's anything you want to hustle about right now or tell tell the world about yes, where we could follow you i'm on twitter at bronte schultz um and i have a website which is bronte um where i post um my academic work and um some creative writing as well um i have a youtube channel also at bronte schultz which i haven't used very much but there is a video on there of a lecture i gave um on uh, the Stone Tape and Ghost Watch and various other programs that look at television horror. Um, and next year, um, the book Derek Johnston is currently uh, putting together on Nigel Neal and Horror is going to be coming out. Um, so that's a long way off yet. Um, but keep an eye out for that. It should be really good. There are some fantastic contributors looking at all kind of aspects of, of Neil's um, film and television work. Uh, so it's very exciting. And I'm yeah, really excited to be part of that. Wonderful. We'll put links to some of those things in the show notes, inevitably. Um, so, yeah, Bronte Schultz, thank you so much for coming on to Birdcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Birdcast is an independent podcast produced and edited by John Deere and myself, Howard David Ingham. Thanks again to Bronte Schiltz for being such a fantastic guest and being so very patient. Thanks for listening. It's in the computer!